from New York City. This is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. This is John McWhorter. And, you know, if you've been listening to this show, frankly, at all, you know that I kind of like food and I'm always dropping in these meaningless references to food. And I figure I should do at least one food show. A few of you have asked. And the question is how you go about it. And, you know, I, I like me some food, but I, I don't want to make it romantic. It can't be about the food that you kind of want to read a book about. I'm, I'm not going to do it about, you know, where the words for wine and oysters and rosemary came from. Those things are nice to eat. But frankly, the stories are not really there. Really, the story of food is in just the basic, vanilla, boring stuff. It's a lot of fun. So here's a food show. Not wine, but just stuff that you shove into your mouth and what it can teach us about linguistics, which is another way of saying what it can teach us about how language really works. That should be the, the trademark of what linguistics is. How language really works, said in that 50s way of the little R. One way that language really works is something called semantic narrowing. Now, you're, you're asleep already. I know that doesn't sound interesting. It sounds like something that you get starting when you're in your 50s or something like that. But semantic narrowing is actually pretty interesting. And here's how I will try to get that across. You go back to, say, the year 1200 or maybe even the year 800. And you're trying to use your language and you've learned to make the adjustments necessary. If you're talking about 1200, it would be such an adjustment that you would pretty much feel like you weren't speaking English at all. If you're talking about 800, well, really, you might as well be speaking German. But actually, it's English. But one thing that would throw you is what things that you eat are called. So into the 1500s. No, I'm not saying 16th century. It's always awkward. The years have 15, but you call it the 16th century. All that is is a kind of trick that somebody came up with. You get used to it, but frankly, there's a lot you get used to that we really could do without, like, you know, back in the old days, cigarettes. So the 1500s. Into the 1500s, food is called meat. Meat is that which you put in your mouth, not just the flesh, not just the pork chops, but anything. And there are remnants of that now in that sweet meat is pancreas, isn't it? And it's actually better than that sounds, but it's not meat in any sense that you would consider, not even in the sausage sense. It's just something of itself. It's like you're eating something from another planet and whatever that something is, it's not meat or minced meat. Well, what's minced up from what I seem to recall, I'm not somebody who eats a whole lot of minced meat, but it's fruit. It's like raisins and shit, but it's not like turkey or something like that, that goes back to when meat just meant food. There was a time when you talked about green meat, and that didn't mean Sam I am, that meant vegetables, you know, the, the green meats, the green foods. So if you wanted to be more specific, for example, in Old English, if you wanted to refer to what we call meat, you called it flesh meat. But you couldn't just say meat because that could also be a carrot. Flesh meat was meat. And you have to go a little bit later. But if you heard people using the word fruit, you would find that they were using it rather vaguely in our sense, because fruit meant roughly everything but meat, everything that comes out of the ground. And so fruit was not only that, oh, it's a tomato and it's kind of that factoid, but it would be like a carrot or like kale. That was fruit. I wonder if they had kale, but that was fruit. So it's not only the peaches and the grapes, but also the vegetables, also the nuts, all of that is fruit, like the fruit of the earth. 
That's the way it was. Now, if you wanted to get more specific than that about the fruits, then you know what vegetable was? Vegetable is a later word that was borrowed from French. If you think about it, you know that's not one of the original words like house and dam and the. Vegetable is like a vegetable. That's what that is. Vegetable is wart. So now if we know the word wart, it's that stuff St. John's wart that does not cure depression. But wart was the word for vegetable. And as far as apples went, this is something that's really interesting. Apple didn't refer only to that generally overrated red thing that for some reason is more available than fruit that tastes better. Apple was just fruit, the kind of fruit that you can hold in your hand. So it could be a peach. It could be a pear. It could be the sorts of things that we think of as fruits. That's what an apple was. So meat is food. Fruit is that which comes from the earth. And then wart is carrots and celery and kale and and whatever other vegetables they had. And then apple is fruit. (laughs) You think I'm about to play some song about apples, and I'm not, and I'm not going to trick you and play one later. No songs about apples. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. I don't like that song, so we're not going to do that. Here's where the semantic narrowing comes in. After a while, say after this 16, no, 1500s, meat means the good stuff. So lamb. Okay. So you need a word for just what you shove in your mouth and that becomes food. Food had existed before, but it felt more like what we would think of as fuel. It's like what you shove into the mouth of like a cow. It's not an accident that a variant on that word is fodder. So food is like fuel, what you shove in just to keep going. But once there's no more word meat, as in mincemeat, sweetmeat, and meat meat, well, then you need food. And so food becomes the word for basically food. And meat becomes what we think of it as. And vegetable comes in, and it refers to what we think of as vegetables. And fruit ends up narrowing. So fruit isn't just anything that comes out of the dirt. Fruit becomes things that are sweet and that you can hold and you might have for dessert or something like that. And then... Apple, which used to have that meaning, narrows to mean the Macintosh. And no, you don't want that. But then the honey crisps are already getting a little off. You notice that what's called a honey crisp at the farmer's market is now practically anything. They will sell you a tennis ball and they'll say, oh, it's honey crisp. There's something wrong. But what that means is that there was narrowing. So meat semantically narrows from food to meat. Fruit semantically narrows from thing you pull out of the ground, like in the middle of Gone with the Wind, to meaning that sweet thing that you enjoy. Apple narrows. It's semantically narrowed. That's not about atherosclerosis. That's about semantic narrowing. And apple comes to refer to a particular, usually red, sometimes yellow or green, but usually red fruit that has a core, etc. And you know what that means is that the idea that there was an apple in the Garden of Eden? Not necessarily, because the translation is such that we can't be sure if that is what was meant by the apple word then. It could have been a peach. It could have been a tangelo. It could have been a mangosteen. Who knows? It probably was not that thing that, you know, is a gala and a Fuji and a honey crisp, etc. Another funny thing about apple, actually, is that there are those who think, if those is um, my friend Theo Venemon, who has very interesting theories about Germanic meeting Semitic in Europe, which I hope are borne out, he also thinks that something else happened to apple. 
Apple, according to Venomon's theory, actually narrowed even further. Remember the Semitic languages? Remember I somehow wangled a show about the Semitic group of languages? Well, there's some that nobody's ever heard of, not Arabic and not Hebrew, not even Aramaic. Some of the Semitic languages actually have a root where Venomon thinks that apple came to mean testicles. The idea meaning like, well, look at them apples. And it's somebody's <clears throat> balls. And so his idea is that there was a further narrowing. So first it means fruit, and then it means overrated red thing, and then it means a man's, well, fruiting organs. One never knows. In any case, yeah, one never knows. I'm not going to do a fat swallow, but let's do that kind of mood. This is a song called You're My Meat. And you can take it for whatever it's supposed to mean. This is Lewis Jordan, who is a black kind of proto-rock and roller. If any of you saw Five Guys Named Mo on Broadway, then you have a sense of what his music was like. It's neither fish nor fowl, and it's wonderful. This is Your My Meat. Outside in and inside out, you're my meat. Ah, you're fat and forty, but naughty, you're my meat. From your feet to your head, you knock me dead, you're my meat. I got you covered, but baby, you're my meat. In the days of old, when nights were bold, they were pious and modest, I'm told. Don't you see, that couldn't be me. I'd have to talk about your yams and your big fat hams. It excites me so, because I know you're my meat. Fat and forty, but lordy, you're my meat. breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What about that? Well, you know, one thing, I'm just going to throw this at you. You know, brunch, very interesting. I was watching the Looney Tune, um, Corny Concerto from 1943, the other day, as we all check up on our Looney Tunes all the time, as I'm shoving them down my children's throats. And I noticed that one of the jokes in it is somebody says, out to brunch. That's early for brunch in terms of what we would viscerally expect. And there's a little lesson in how that which you think is new. I'm always hearing from people saying, I'm hearing something new these days. And it's almost a cliche that my answer tends to be, you know, actually that goes back to the dawn of time. With brunch, I intuitively would think that that word started in about 1972. I have never bothered to look it up, but I was surprised to see it in that World War II cartoon. We think of brunch as this new sort of thing that maybe started on the Upper East Side of New York City. No, they were using it out in California in a rather raunchy, silly cartoon. In any case, I didn't start out wanting to do brunch. I was going to do breakfast. What about that word breakfast? It's so ordinary, but it's actually an interesting case of what we call compounding, which I've discussed just a little on this show. But with breakfast, you really do see the contrast between spelling and reality. Because breakfast, well, what, what is that? You break the fast. Okay. Now, we know that intellectually because we know how to spell, and so we can see how breakfast is spelled. But think how far the pronunciation is from breaking a fast. Imagine being somebody non-literate, you know, for example, a child, and you learn early on if you're a child that there's this thing called breakfast or breakfast or something like that. But you're not thinking about breaking anything, and you don't know what a fast is. Gradually, you learn that that's what it is, depending on when you learn what a fast is. But really, what happened is that break and fast came together and created a new word. So we sometimes wonder, where do words come from? And it's very hard to say where the first 
word for, say, climb came from. It's kind of hard to make a sound like climbing. You know, how did they come up with the word for climb? We really may never know. But how words happen after language has already settled in is partly through this kind of fusion. So first there was break, then there was fast. And now there's this thing called breakfast, which has nothing to do, except historically, with break and fast in terms of what we mean. It's a neat idea that you're breaking a fast when you eat breakfast. But really, we think of this thing called breakfast as the first meal of the day. And so breakfast joins words like daisy. Daisy is day's eye. Who knew? Who cared? But that's where we got the word for daisy for a reason that's clear. But still, now we think of daisy as just a word of its own. Or my favorite example, cupboard. Cupboard. C-U-B-B-E-R-D. Cupboard. That's what the word is, and it refers to some kind of closet. Spelled cupboard, okay, but you you don't really put any cups on a board in a cupboard, or if that's what it is, because you're putting cups on a shelf, kind of an intellectual way of thinking of it. And really, you don't learn that it's a cupboard until you learn how to spell, and you're looking at Dickens or something like that. It's a cupboard, a brand new word for some sort of kitchen-y, closet-y, cabinet-y thing, emerged when cup and board collided and got all bloody and got all mixed up like you know, two cars. That's a terrible thing to think about. But anyway, that's what cupboard is. Cupboard is, is a car accident. Breakfast is that. And then there's this business with fast. Just fast alone, just the second part of this word. Fast goes back to a word that basically means fasten, that fast. So to hold tight. And there are all sorts of fast usages, which aren't the first ones that come to our mind because we associate it with being rapid. But there are all sorts of things like to hold fast. It was stuck fast. If you're fast asleep, that refers to you presumably being still. You are probably not sprinting while you're fast asleep. And then if that's what fast means, then you can understand how there'd be a metaphorical extension. And that fast could mean that you hold out from eating. You hold fast to the arms of your chair or something because you can't have any bologna or something like that. You hold out from eating. Now, how do you get from that to something like a rabbit and quickness? You know, no one really knows. The quick fast doesn't go back to some other root. There was no root like like this or something that meant rapid. It really goes right back to this fasten. And a good guess is that maybe it came from the fact that you can run hard and you're holding on to that pace. You're, You're sticking it out. You're lasting. You're running fast. Well, since running is rapid, then over the years, you might start thinking of fast as not holding on to a speed, but as referring to the speed itself. And next thing you know, fast means rapid. That's probably the way it happened. And there's about a reason and a half to suppose that's the way it went. But the lesson of fast is that it's okay for a word to mean its opposite. And if anything, it's just kind of cool. It's like somebody who has a couple of bad habits that they only reveal to their intimates. Today, it would be like a college professor who vapes. I do not vape, but I'll bet some do. They would never let it be seen. But at a certain kind of party or if they're up in the Catskills, they're going to go out back and they're going to pull out. That's the sort of thing it is. But fast and fast. So you hold fast and so you're sitting still. Then if you're a rabbit, you're running really quickly. 
And so it means both being still and being quick. None of us have ever thought of that as a problem. You seed the earth, you put the seeds in. You seed a watermelon. If you are putting seeds into the watermelon, you are a very, very sick person. You're taking the seeds out. This evinces no confusion. And yet, literally, think about it, people get so upset because literally means by the letter and then it also means figuratively. So you can say, I literally read it from cover to cover. Okay. Then you can also say, I was literally dying of thirst. And if you said it, it means that you couldn't have been dying of thirst because you didn't die. And there's a kind of person that says, I don't like the way it's used to mean the opposite of itself. But the thing is, contronyms are very common in languages. It's just the sort of thing that semantic change, whether it's narrowing or broadening and all sorts of other meaning change processes, create. That's just what happens. And you end up with these alternate meanings that cancel one another out. And you know what? It's part of being the marvelous and imperfect thing that language is. I will not give you a song about apples, but I am going to make you listen to a song about breakfast. I've wanted to play this one for the whole three years. This is 1936. We're in Broadway Melody of 1936, a, a cutish film. And this is Sing Before Breakfast. And you know who this is singing? It's Buddy Ebsen. Some of you will remember him from the Beverly Hillbillies. Some of you will remember him from Barnaby Jones. Some of you won't remember him at all, but he was the original Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz until he got sick from the face paint and had to drop out. And he was at that studio and therefore had been in this Broadway melody of 1936. I don't know what he was doing in the 50s, but this is Buddy Epson and his sister. Buddy Epson starts out as a brother-sister act. Vilma Epson. And the two of them are dancing around. They're living on a roof for some reason and not minding. And they are singing before breakfast. Tell me this isn't a catchy little tune. Before breakfast, help the birdies along. Before you have that butter toast, have a song you gotta sing. Before breakfast, croon a tune and rejoice. Before you use that coffee pot, use your voice. The whole world may seem funny, but it is good enough. If you run out of money, honey, put it on the cuff and sing. Before breakfast, never cry at a thing. Before you eat that shredded wheat, sing, just sing and sing, sister. Before breakfast, sing, sister. Before breakfast, sing, sister. Before breakfast, open your mouth and sing. So, if it's going to be breakfast, well, what about lunch? Where'd that word come from, lunch? You might think it's onomatopoeia because it sounds like lunch, like that. And, you know, there are words that arise that way, but that's supposed to be your sort of last gasp analysis. And lunch does not come from listening to somebody biting into something and chewing with their mouth open or something like that. Lunch is actually a lesson in how so very many of our words in this language started just as mistakes. A lunch originally was not say, a bologna sandwich with a pickle and a glass of orange soda. That comes much later. A lunch was just a hunk of something. You're some medieval person, you know, building some castle because you've been forced to do that. Well, what are you going to eat in the middle of the day if you can't go home? Well, you're going to bring along some lunch of something and not lunch as in a peanut butter sandwich. It's just some hunk probably of bread, something that you can just gnaw on because you have to keep building that castle because you're about to die. 
That is what a lunch was. So Frodo, hand me your lunch. And Frodo would hand you some big piece of bread dunked in rabbit's blood or whatever they ate. Now, that was fine for a while. But there was this other word, now lost. That word was nunchen. Nunchen. A nunchen was not a numchuck or something like that. A nunchen was your noon drink. Chun was from a word that meant drink, now gone. And your nunchen was something that you would drink at noon, such as some weak beer or something like that. So as you're getting towards the middle of the day, it's time to start gnawing on your lunch, that hunk of crap in your hand. Then you might have a, a swig of ale. And so that's your nunchen. Now, if you've got what back then would have been pronounced lunch, and then you've got your nunchen, you just know. You just know that after a while, people are going to start talking about their lunchen. Lunchen meaning that thing that you eat around noon. So next thing you know, you've got nunchen. And pretty soon people stop calling it that. Lunchen sticks around. Pretty soon it's called luncheon. And so this name for the midday meal comes from this nunchen plus this hunk of this lunch thing that you used to hold in your hand and maybe smack somebody with. And so nunchen becomes lunchen becomes luncheon. And then after a while, it only happens in 1700s, people started shortening luncheon. Of course, you're going to start calling it lunch. Now, nobody knew then that there used to be something else called a lunch or a lunch, which was just some hunk of rotten bread. Now, your lunch might be, you know, that bologna sandwich with some olives on the side, or maybe something like this. You have ramen, and then you have a nice tin of sardines with lemon juice squirted over them and probably some nice fresh pepper. You might want to add some salt. Then you do have um, pickle. I would advise the half sour pickle. And all of this is somewhat salinated, but you could also have peach fresca on the side to kind of cut the salination. And then enjoy either some golden raisins or maybe just one Reese's peanut butter cup. That can be a lunch that you have in private when nobody's watching if you're not a vapor. But in any case, this business of lunch means that it was a mistake. And so there was something called a lunch and something called a noonchen. And the nchen in noonchen was the boundary between two words and then the continuation of the second one. Next thing you know, you have a luncheon, and then we shorten it to lunch. So lunch has this hunk of noonchen kind of hanging on the end of it, but really it's just a complete mistake. It's like hamburger. Hamburger starts out as being about that tidy German city. Hamburg, hamburger steak, steak a la whatever they were doing to steak in Hamburg. So hamburger steak. Naturally, people are going to start shortening that to hamburger. Now, a way that you might shorten it further, because it's fun to shorten things, is just to call it Hamburg. And that was definitely the case. Uh, ring on the Hamburg, ring on the bun. Papi's little puppy loves everyone. Cause it's supper. It's up, sup, sup, it's supper. It's up, pepper, up, it's supper. It's up, it's up, it's up, Why can't you eat your meal quietly and calmly like any other normal dog? So, what's wrong with making mealtime a joyous occasion? 
So even as late as the 60s, you could say Hamburg. I remember that too. My mother once got me a board game from the Goodwill that was about supermarkets. It was kind of an off-brand game. This wasn't a Milton Bradley or a Parker Brothers. This was from something like, you know, Costless Co. or something like that. But it was some supermarket game. And I remember the little tile with hamburger said Hamburg. And I always found that odd. So that's one thing that you could do with hamburger. But what actually happened was that well, ham is meat, and so you've got this hamburger, and so you're thinking, well, it's a burger of ham. And next thing you know, you've got this brand new word, burger. Really, George Washington would have had no idea what you meant by burger, except maybe you're talking about a plump little citizen in Westphalia or something like that. But this business of calling things burgers, that's something that only happens in the 20th century. And so not tuna burger, veggie burger, Warren burger, all of that is based on a mistaken analysis of hamburger. Same thing with luncheon being really a nonsense word and then shortened to lunch. And yet, here we are. You know, I um, used to ask my father, talking about Looney Tunes, what the songs were they were playing in the background. That really is the beginning of all this stupid music I play on this show. It wasn't show tunes. It was Looney Tunes and what was in the background. And not, not Kill the Wabbit and not Rabbit of Seville, but all little tunes in the back. And my father was a song encyclopedia for the early 20th century. I don't think he thought of himself that way, but boy, he knew every song. And so the first one I noticed, I noticed that in the Looney Tunes, whenever a character eats, they play this pretty little tune in the background. And one day, I think it was 1976, I said, Dad, what is that little song? And he said, oh, that's a cup of coffee, a sandwich, and you. And I said, Dad, I want that song. And he taught me how to go to the Free Library of Philadelphia and Xerox old sheet music. And the beginning of a sickness was born. So A Cup of Coffee, A Sandwich, and You was the first old song that I was aware of. And you know, until now, I have never bothered to listen to an actual contemporary rendition of it. I think of it as Carl Stalling playing it while you know the coyote eats something. But no, this is the song, 1926, as it actually went. You, if you like Looney Tunes at all, will recognize this as their little eating instrumental. So if we're going to be talking about lunch, well, there has to be something about a sandwich. Well, what about a cup of coffee, a sandwich, and you? A cup of coffee, a sandwich, and you. A cozy corner, a table for two. A half an hour to cuddle and cool. What about dinner? Now we get to dinner. Dinner fascinates me. It's really a beautiful example of how vastly words transform over time. Start with Latin, jejunus, jejunus, or as we move on, jejunus. That meant barren. Yes, this is where dinner started. Jejunus meant barren, dry. And so, jejunare, jejunare, that meant to fast. Now, as you might guess, 
Jejunus, one pathway that it took is that it's our word jejun, which refers to somebody who is kind of naive or immature. And you can see how that's a metaphorical extension of barren. So jejunare, to fast. Now, what happens if you break the fast? Well, this is Latin, so you can't say break jejunare or something. You disjejuned. So disjejunare, disjejunare, that's to break a fast, disjejunare. So you're an ancient Roman and now you can eat. I'm not sure why you stopped, but you were fasting. Then now, well, Nero, I'm going to disjejunare. Okay. Well, Latin becomes other languages. One of them is French. Early French, people have been saying disjejunare a lot. And so it's going to get a little shorter. So instead of say disjejunare, you might say desjunare. Desjunare. Okay. Keep saying it pretty soon in old French, not desjunare, but disnare. Desjunare, 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 disnare, disnare. So you've got disnare. Now, after a while, that s in the middle drops out, dinaire. So that's dinaire. Now, English borrows a lot of words from French and it makes them into a more Englishy sound. So dinaire becomes dinner. That means that this word dinner started as disyayunare. Disyayunare becomes dinner. So you have this long, long word, and now we just have dinner, where just the ner, just that little syllable, has jejun inside of it. Jejun actually is the same thing as that ner. Now, those of you familiar with French will know that desunare also became déjeuner, and déjeuner now is an earlier meal than dinner in French. You have your déjeuner, so you never know. What's going to happen to a word? But dinner goes back to disjejunare. You know, you have a Sunday dinner. You have a Sunday song. This is 1934. Talk about jejun. This is from a movie called Harold Teen. It was about a perfect moron who was supposed to be charming. I don't know what people liked about Hal Leroy. Don't watch Harold Teen. Except there's one good thing about it, and that is this cute little song, How Do I Know It's Sunday. It didn't get around a whole lot, but you might be humming it throughout the rest of the day. This is How Do I Know It's Sunday from 1934. This is Sammy Fain's tune and Irving Cajal's lyric. How do I know it's Sunday? I slept till almost 10 again. Didn't go to church again. Mm. How do I know I love you? I wouldn't forget the things I do if I didn't care. How do I know it's Monday? I miss the morning bus again, planning things for us again. Mm. How do I know I love you? I'm up in the clouds the whole day through. I'm not aware of the time, don't care if I'm hungry, sleepy, or ill. I stumble when I walk, I stutter when I talk. I'm a daffy daffodil. I know it's raining, I left my rubbers neath the bed, wore a Sunday suit instead. Mm -hmm. How do I know I love you? I wouldn't be late on Sunday, or miss the bus on Monday, if I didn't care a lot for you. And so, dessert is not interesting. It's from D and then serve. 
So to unserve, it's from to clear the table. But you know what? To tell you the truth, wine and oysters, those aren't very interesting etymologies. But frankly, rosemary's isn't awful. And if you want to know what the etymology of rosemary is, then you have to get slate plus. Slate plus is where I do a little extra bit after every show. And for a nominal fee, if you get Slate Plus, not only do you hear those extra bits, but you don't have to listen to me or anybody else doing any ads. You just get to have a clean experience, plus a little extra, a little dessert. And it doesn't only help my show, but it helps all of the fine podcasts here at Slate. So if you want to know where Rosemary came from and you want to hear about the surrounding context, you've got to go to Slate Plus. In any case, I know that the clips today have been a little bit 1930s and that is not everybody's taste. And so how about something a little leaner, a little meaner, although by today's standards, it's still ancient. This is early 80s R&B. This is a lean, mean song. It tastes like greens. It tastes like pot liquor to me. This is called Over Like a Fat Rat. I used to love this one, me and my friends when I was a teenager. Over Like a Fat Rat, just a, a yelping, greensy <laughs> song. This is by Fonda Ray. I think it's 1982. In any case, we'll end with this for those of you who loathed How Do I Know It's Sunday. <laughs> You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Oh, all right. Wine comes from a word that just meant wine. Oh, well, oyster. That traces back to a word that, that meant bone, bony, because oyster shells are hard like bones. I, see, I can't do anything with that. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. <laughs>